I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. And as you turn in there, we're picking up the story that we were considering last Sunday, and uh, we're coming to the conclusion. And maybe you're with us and you say, hey, I wasn't here last Sunday, so that's okay. Let me just bring you up to speed in the story. Uh, So if you were here in verses 1 to 17 of Acts chapter 12, we read about how Herod, King Herod, was persecuting the church in Jerusalem. In fact, he beheaded the Apostle James. And when he beheaded the Apostle James, the crowd absolutely loved it in the city. And so at this point, the whole city is really turned against the Christians. And Herod sees, hey, I could be a really popular guy if I keep this up. So he arrests the Apostle Peter. And so the Apostle Peter is put in prison. Sixteen guards are watching the Apostle Peter. And the church does what the church does. They, they gather together and they had an ordinary prayer meeting. And they sought the Lord earnestly and in faith. And they sought Him together. And as they prayed, the text tells us, in the middle of the night, an angel came into that prison cell, filled it up with light, and, and Peter still didn't wake up. So he gave him a little kick. And Peter gets up. And the, the guards are either blinded or asleep. We're not sure. Miraculously, they don't see and the chains fall off of Peter, and the prison door opens, and then the gate opens, and the angel leads him out. And eventually, Peter has a joyful reunion with this ordinary prayer group. And so that's what we looked at last Sunday, and it was a beautiful story. But today, we come to the conclusion of that story, one final detail in the text. We're going to read from verses 18 to 24. Look there with me now. And hear God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. Now, When day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, when Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man! Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, As we come to the conclusion of this story, the main thrust of this story and where we're going to conclude this morning is that it is a story to embolden and encourage the church. So here we just saw the villain. Herod, is he's playing the villain in this story. And we hear about the demise of this villain, this powerful king who is brought down by the Lord. And it's meant to encourage the church. But as I was preparing and studying this week, it struck me that this passage is an encouragement if you are in Christ. It is an encouragement if you are the people of God. However, however, this isn't an encouraging story if you're Herod. Right? Herod was not very encouraged by this story. Actually, for people like Herod, this story serves as a warning. And it struck me that I don't want to rush by that before we get to you know, the, the main thrust. And so this morning, I want us to hear that warning before we hear the encouragement. The warning is in the life of Herod. So let's consider this man. The Herod we meet in this passage is named Herod Agrippa I. So he is in the Herodian dynasty. Uh, These are the kings of Jerusalem, so he's a Jew. His grandfather was Herod the Great. And you'd say, well, I don't know Herod the Great. Yes, you do, actually, if you're familiar with the Christmas story. You remember when the wise men were coming and they they went to the king? 
And they said, we're looking, we're looking for this, this king that's going to be born. And he said, oh, wonderful. Well, when you find him, you should come back and tell me where he is. And of course, the wise men realized Herod's going to kill this baby. Well, Herod the Great is the one that ordered that all of the boys, two years old and younger, in the area of Bethlehem should be murdered. So that's grandpa for this guy in our text. And his uncle is not much better. His uncle is Herod Antipas. He's the one from the story of John the Baptist. So if you remember Herod Antipas, he, he falls in love with his brother's wife. And because he's the king, he says, I'm just going to steal my brother's wife. And, and so he does. And John the Baptist preaches to this Jewish king and says, that's sin. And Herod says, I'm going to just put you in prison. And so rather than repenting, he throws John the Baptist in prison. And then after one of his dancers really pleases him, Herod Antipas says to the dancer, what, what can I give you? I'll give you anything. And she says, I want you to behead John the Baptist. And so he does. Beheads John the Baptist. That's the uncle. So we met grandpa. We met the uncle. This family is a moral disaster. They are a mess. And what we learn here is that Herod Agrippa I, the Herod of our text, is an apple that did not fall far from the tree. This is a bad guy from a bad family who did bad things. Okay? He's, he's one of those. However, it's easy for us to, to consider the story of the good guys and the bad guys and to immediately identify with the good guys. I just want to really consider this villain for a little moment, if we could. I want to pull out five things we learned from the passage, five things we learned from the text that drive us into this warning. First of all, as we look at this man and we consider this warning, we see that he was a duplicitous man, meaning he was a man with two faces. He was a Jew, the king of the Jews, in fact. However, he was also just as comfortable in the Roman pagan world. He could live in both worlds. He could, he could wear both hats. I'm going to quote from the Jewish historian Josephus a couple times today, just because he, he gives us an extra insight into the life of Herod. Josephus says of Herod that he loved to live continually at Jerusalem and was exactly careful in the observance of the laws of his country. He therefore kept himself entirely pure, nor did any day pass over his head without its appointed sacrifice. So hear that. This Herod, this villain, when he was in Jerusalem, he was a very religious man. He was a devout man. He, he was the kind of Jew that you watch him and you watch the way he's, he's not missing a day with his sacrifices. But he was also just as comfortable in the Roman world. His palace was in Caesarea, the Roman capital of Judea, where he enjoyed an indulgent life filled with treasures and pleasures because Herod was at home in the world and at home in the church. He could do either. Happy to worship, happy to sin. He learned how to play the parts. He learned how to wear the mask. He was a duplicitous man. Next, we see that he was a political man. So through childhood friendships, Herod had developed a relationship with all of these different Roman leaders, and they grew up together, and so he had, he had quite an empire under him, actually just the same size as Herod the Great's empire. He knew how to play the political game. In fact, that's how we meet him in chapter 12. He's playing the political game when he arrests Peter. Look at chapter 12, 1 to 3. When it says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And so why, why did he arrest Peter? Because he was so opposed to the message? Because he really thought about what the Christians were teaching? No, he arrested Peter for votes. He arrested Peter because that was, that was good for his power and his position, and that's what he cared about. 
He wasn't opposed to the gospel. He didn't care about the gospel. He was indifferent to it. He cared about power, right? And so he was after whatever he needed to do to further his power. He was a duplicitous man, a political man, and we discover next he was a foolish man. I'm drawing this observation from verses 18 to 19. There we read, Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now if you remember, Herod had assigned 16 soldiers to guard Peter. Peter was his prize. He saw if he could behead Peter, he's going to win the crowd. Right? So he's, he's trying to maintain. But, but the angel miraculously released Peter and let him out of prison. And as we read this verses 18 to 19, you might be struck by the fact that he killed the guards. You might think, well, he was an angry man. That should be the takeaway. But actually, that was the custom. If guards lost their prisoner, then it was the custom that whatever was supposed to happen to the prisoner would happen to the guards. And so Herod wasn't acting in rage here. That's not what we're seeing. But I would argue that what we are seeing is we're seeing indifference. Indifference. This miraculous event should have stirred up some questions in Herod's heart. A man doesn't simply walk out of a prison cell past 16 guards. Chains don't simply unshackle themselves. Prison doors don't simply swing open. There was more than enough evidence here for Herod to at least pause and ask some questions. But he didn't pause. He just killed the guards and went back into the affairs of his life. In spite of the fact that this miracle had happened right in front of his eyes, the Jesus followers and the message they proclaimed simply just weren't interesting to Herod. He had other things to do because Herod was a fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, Psalm 53.1 says. Herod here has more than enough evidence to press in, to look in, just like each of us has more than enough evidence to press in, to look in, and yet in Herod's life, we find really a living example of what Paul warns against in Romans 1.18, where we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. He's got all that evidence there, but he, he didn't see it. He didn't see it because he didn't want to see it. And he didn't want to see it because the next thing we learn about him, he was a self-exalting man. That's why he didn't want to see it. Look at verses 21 to 22. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man! Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, as I said, Josephus was writing about this same man, the same event. Josephus comes from a different perspective. And Josephus describes, some say that they're conflicting accounts. I don't think they are. Uh, Josephus says that he was struck down in that moment, but actually it, he died. it was five days of agony before he died. Uh, but first, Josephus tells us, I jumped ahead, Josephus tells us that he was dressed in a, an elegant silver robe. He tells us that the silver, illumined by the touch of the first rays of the sun, was wondrously radiant, and by its glitter, it inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. So if you can just imagine this man, he's, he's sitting up on his throne, 
these groups, they had been doing something that had bothered him, but he, he showed favor to them, and so then they start praising him, and he's in this silver robe, and the sun's shining on it, and he, it's glistening, right? And they shout out, the voice of a God, and not of a man. And you wonder what that must have felt like. And no one's ever said that about me. I imagine nobody's ever said that about you. But for Herod, I would imagine that in this moment, he probably felt like he had arrived. His whole life, all the duplicity, all of the politics, all of the posturing and clamoring for power, in this moment, shining in his silver robe, the crowds are crying out, you are no man, you are God. Now Herod was a practicing Jew, or at least half of him was, remember? So he knew that this was blasphemy. He knew that he was not a God, he knew that God is God and he should not receive that praise. And yet in this moment, he really didn't care. He suppressed that truth just like he had suppressed the truth of the empty cell. Clothed in his silver robe, seated on his throne, he received their praise and he listened as the crowd affirmed what Herod actually already believed in his heart. I am a God. But this moment was short-lived because immediately Herod was reminded that he was just a man. The story ends... And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So this is where I jumped ahead earlier. Josephus, talking about the same story, tells us that he was struck down in that moment, but actually it was, it was five days before he died. He had agonizing pain in his abdomen. And commentators speculate he probably died from appendicitis. Pause. I got appendicitis a couple of years ago, and this resonates with me. I remember that day, like, lying on the floor and thinking, I wish I was dead. It's a terrible thing. And imagine having appendicitis and not being able to go to the doctor where they can remove it. He suffered from this, and, and commentators speculate that it led to an infestation of round worms. This is gross. And Dr. Gary can probably picture all this. It's a terrible, a terrible thing. But here's the takeaway for us. Nothing humbles a man particularly a man who believes himself to be a god, the way that sickness does. See, all of Herod's wealth, all of Herod's approval ratings, all of Herod's political alliances could not cure his tummy ache. He was helpless. He was dying. Because like every fool who had been born before him and every fool who has been born since, Herod was not a god. He was just a man. Now, according to Josephus, Herod came to his senses, actually, on his deathbed. Josephus tells us that Herod said, I, a God in your eyes, am now bidden to lay down my life, for fate brings immediate refutation of the lying words lately addressed to me. I, who was called immortal by you, am now under sentence of death. And so ended Herod Agrippa I, a bad guy, from a bad family who did bad things. He's one of those. He's a villain. And yet, before we move on, all week long, I just felt led to make this one last observation. We learn about Herod Agrippa that he was just a man, dot, 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 like us. He was just a man like us. The Disney movies and all of that stuff, there's a big craze right now to do these villain, the villain movies. I'm not big into that, that world. But I've noticed that it feels like every other movie coming out right now is telling the story of the villain. And it it paints this story. And and we really live in a world of the good guys and the bad guys. But as Christians, and as we read the Bible, we see that 
Our story is not the story of the good guys and the bad guys. Here in this room, we're not the good guys, and, and those folks out there aren't the bad guys. Do you know that? And the Bible doesn't say that, that some of those bad guys sinned and fell short of the glory of God. No, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As we read a story like this, and as we consider a life like Herod's, the frightening reality is that we are all capable of being the bad guys. If you were able to walk through that, that account of Herod's sin in his life without seeing any of that hiding in the dark recesses of your heart, then I wonder if you might not be deceiving yourself. The Puritan John Owen warns, it is to be feared that very many have little knowledge of the main enemy that they carry about with them in their bosoms. It's a scary thing that so many walk around entirely oblivious to the sin that lurks in their hearts. Now this passage is comfort, and we're going to get there. But again, I just felt I couldn't get past this this week. That before we get to that comfort, for all the Herods in the world, this passage is a sobering warning. And I want to make sure that, that if, if those Herods are here, that we hear this warning. This passage warns against our duplicity. Another word for that might be hypocrisy. And so we've just considered Herod, this religious man who never missed a sacrifice, who, who when he was in Jerusalem, everybody looked at him and they said, he is the picture of, of what it is to be devout. And in this room this morning, we've gathered together and we're praying prayers and looking to God's word and we sung these songs. And, but my question for you is, I wonder if there's anyone in this room who is going to go back into the world this week and is going to look like an entirely different person until we gather again next week. Boy, be warned this morning. If, if the people in your school, if the people in your workplace, maybe the people in, in your home, if they would be shocked by this version of you because they've never seen them before because it looks nothing like the version of you that is living out in their world, you might have more in common with Herod than you realize. Just as happy at worship as he is in the world. Just as happy at church as he is in his sin. This is a warning. This is a warning against our politicking. And perhaps a better word for us because we're not living in that political world that he was living in is our people-pleasing. You know, if you think about what Herod did, ultimately, if you boil it down, what did Herod do? Herod chose to sin so that he could win the praise and the applause of the world. That's what it came down to. He sinned. He was ready to kill Peter. Why? So that he could win the applause of the world. Now, none of us are in a position to kill Peter, of course. And yet, how many of us have wrestled this week? We had an opportunity to sin to win the praise of our peers. If I just compromise here, if, if I just indulge here, I can get further along. I mean, we're, we're living in it. I was praying for, for you this Thursday. I recognize it's different for me. I'm, I'm working at the church. But for many of you, there was probably a, some opportunities this week where if I just put this flag on my desk, I can move further up the ladder. If I, if I just join in the celebration of this, I can get ahead. We're living in that. Or maybe you've got that deceptive boss. And if, if I just fudge the numbers, if I would just go along with, with his scheme. I heard a story just a few weeks ago from one of you who had this in the workplace. Your boss is just pressing you. Just compromise just a little bit. This is the way to get ahead. If you're willing to compromise, compromise with sin to further your own agenda, to gain the praise of the world, then you might have more in common with Herod than you realize. And it warns against our foolishness, this passage. 
our propensity to hide and distort the evidence that's right in front of our faces. So Herod had this empty prison cell right in front of his face. And yet you know, we have the empty tomb right in front of our faces. How many of us deny and suppress the fact, even as the church explodes, even as, as the world persecuted these early Christians, and they hung Peter upside down on a cross, and, and to follow Jesus cost everything, and yet the church multiplied and exploded. And still you tell yourself, I think they were lying. I think this is all just a trick. The, the, the apostles are trying to broker power for themselves. What power? They spent their lives running. They spent their lives being persecuted. They spent their lives in prison, and then they were terribly murdered, and yet the truth went forward, and yet we suppress the evidence and say, I think it's a sham. Or, or, or we look to God's word, and he, te- he tells us something so clearly, and yet we find a way to see the opposite of what he says. We suppress it. We fight it. We resist it. Perhaps we have more in common with Herod than we realize. Or our self-exaltation. Now, of course, it looks so silly. We think of, of Shelby Herod sitting in his, his throne and he's got this silver robe on and he's shining and you, you think, I would never do that, we say. And then we go home and we post our selfies with our filters on it. And we'll check back in in a few hours to see how many people have praised us or liked, liked us, commented on us, shared us. That, and that's not why, the praise of man and drawing attention to myself and flaunting my wealth, that's not why I bought that car. That's not why I bought this house. That's, I wonder if we don't have more of that self-exaltating drive in our hearts than we are honest about. We might have more in common with Herod than we realize. And the sin of Herod is no different than the sin that we find often when we look in the mirror. The sin of pride. The sin of cosmic treason trying to dethrone God. And I just didn't want to rush past this because though I love all of you and I assume the best in all of you, the reality is the Bible comes, brings us to terms with ourselves. And it may just be that there's somebody sitting in this room who's just like a Herod, who has deceived yourself into thinking that I can just wear these two masks, I can play these two parts. But if, if you're here and if that's you, if there's a Herod in this room, you need to see verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Boy, that is a sobering, terrifying lesson, isn't it? And yet that's not nearly as terrifying as what Jesus said. When, when Jesus describes the judgment that's coming, it's far worse than, than five days of, of agony. Jesus tells us that, that hell is the place that is reserved for us if we live the life of Herod. Jesus tells us that hell is a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, I want to make sure that we deal honestly with that and see that before we move forward. That is how Herod's story ended. That's how the story ends, apart from the grace of God in Christ. And Herod's story is over, but yours is not. And here's the the good news, the glorious news. Your story doesn't need to end this way. You have an opportunity this morning. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I'm preaching this as if, as if I'm going back in time and I'm at the temple and Herod happens to be there that day performing all the sacrifices, doing his thing. What would I want him to hear? This is what he needs to hear. If we confess our sins, if we just take off the mask and deal honestly with the fact that there is a whole different thing that's happening here that I'm not letting anyone else see. If we let that go and confess it, He is faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And then he does this beautiful thing. You remember in the story, those guards? It's tragic, the guards, right? They had to be put to death because they were responsible for that prisoner. And when the prisoner went free, they had to suffer the penalty that that prisoner was supposed to suffer. Well, in a very real sense, that's what Jesus has done for us, isn't it? Now, it's different because Jesus does this for us willingly. It's different because we're actually guilty. Like, we, we deserve what's coming to us, whereas Peter was an innocent man in that, cell, in that cell. Nevertheless, the story of the gospel is that Jesus, in setting us free, that's the plan of God, Jesus setting us free, even though we deserve hell, said, hey, and I am going to suffer what they deserve. Give me the sentence. Put me on the cross. Put all of the curse of God against sin on me. I will bear it in myself, and I will complete what they owe to God. Jesus is our ransom. Through his perfect obedience, he unlocked the prison doors. He purchased our freedom. And he went to the cross. And he died the death that we owed. That's the good news of the gospel. If you believe that this morning, look to him in faith. If you're here this morning and you're like, I am a Herod. Guess what? Here's the good news. Look to Jesus and live. The text says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because we're not the good guys living in a world full of bad guys. That's not who this assembly is. You need to know that. This is a world full of bad guys who need Jesus. Unfortunately, many in the world ignore the warning and despise the grace of God. And that brings us to really the heart of this passage. You know, why did Luke write this? Truth be told, I don't think that Luke wrote this as a warning for future Herods. I, I think that's fair. I think it's faithful. I see that in the text. But the, the real thrust of this passage and why I struggled all week, that Herod piece felt like a magnet pulling me back. The reality is, where does Luke want us to land this morning? He wants us to land with comfort. Because the reality is, in this world, there will always be Herods. There have always been, there will always be persecutors of the church, rebels against God, people who don't want him, people who don't love him, and people who, in turn, because they hate him, hate you because you're his people. The world will be filled with them. And there will be days when it feels like we're losing. Days when it feels like the whole world's turned against us. Days when we're so discouraged and we just think, how does the story end? Why did Luke write this story? To give comfort and encouragement to the people of God. To give us comfort here. What's the comfort? The comfort is this. He wants us to see that God's mission has never been, is not now, and will never be in jeopardy. God's mission has never been, even when Peter was in prison, is not now today when we watch the culture around us and it feels like the culture hates God and will never be in jeopardy. God will fulfill what he started. That's not just a point from the passage. That is the point in this passage. And it's where we're landing today. It's what I want to make sure you see before we go from this place. Herod plotted and soldiers stood guard. The mission of the church looked like it had been thwarted. But look at verse 24. This is, this is the most beautiful verse. But the word of God increased and multiplied. I would argue that's the summary verse of, of chapter 12. I would argue that's the summary verse of chapters 1 to 12. I think you could argue that's the summary verse of, of human history. The serpent deceived Adam and Eve, and it looked like they were going to lose out on the life that God had promised them. But the word of God increased and multiplied. God's people were then enslaved in Egypt. 
And then they were surrounded by Assyria. And then they were taken into captivity in Babylon. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And then God himself in the flesh came into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we rejected him and we mocked him and we crucified him. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The disciples scattered. But then Jesus rose from the grave. And then Jesus ascended to heaven. And Jesus sent his spirit. And the church then received Power, but the church also received persecution. And the world treated the church the same way that the world treated Jesus. And so the church is often persecuted and rejected, sometimes imprisoned, sometimes even murdered. And yet, the mission of God is not threatened because the Word of God continues to increase and multiply. This is our story. This is our song. Brothers and sisters, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful. I need you to to know that's true. You know, human history proves it to be true. As I alluded to earlier, the fact that there's a church in Aurelia, Ontario today testifies to the fact that the word of God is powerful. As every ruler was, was putting these apostles to death, trying to squash the church, trying to crash this movement as our spiritual enemy the devil was trying to silence the ambassadors of Christ it kept going forward it kept going forward and the world is flipped on its head the gospel is going out to the nations we need to believe this God declares and it's true for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return from there but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word will always and only accomplish God's work. It will succeed. It will succeed. His word will not be suppressed by any tyrant. Not then, not now. Nor will it be restrained by any prison cell. Not then, not now. No, we declare with the prophet Isaiah, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Therefore, we should not be intimidated, though we often are intimidated. We should not be intimidated by the weapons that the enemy wields against us. Because we've been entrusted with a weapon that is unstoppable. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword piercing to the divisions of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So why is this story in the Bible? This story is in the Bible because people like you and people like me are not always as brave as we ought to be. We get discouraged really fast. This story is in the Bible because sometimes, sometimes the world can look like a frightening place, a hopeless place, and we can be tempted to hide our faces in our hands. The stories in the Bible to comfort us and embolden us with a reminder of how our story ultimately ends. The Puritan Richard Sibbs once wrote, let us not look so much at who our enemies are as at who our judge and captain is, nor at what they threaten, but at what he promises. We have more for us than against us. What coward would not fight when he is sure of victory? that sobering line. What a coward would not fight when he is sure of victory. God's mission has never been 
is not now and never will be in jeopardy. So brothers and sisters, if I could encourage you, in love for the world, in love for the Herods, preach the word. Preach the word. Disciple your children. Proclaim the gospel to your neighbors. Proclaim the gospel to your coworkers, your friends at school. Because what the devil wants more than anything in the world is for you to close this book and to shut your mouth. That would be a tremendous win for the enemy. Because he knows something. He knows that when the word of God goes forth, he can't stop it. Can't stop it. He knows that. The devil knows that. The question is, do we know that? Do we believe that? Brothers and sisters, no matter how dark it gets and how bleak it seems, God's word will never fail and his mission will never be in jeopardy. That's what we see in this passage. And as we come to a conclusion and pray, I just want to reiterate one more time, for those who are feeling a little bit like a Herod, there is life for you. There's life for you. There is grace. There is mercy for you. As we're emboldened, as we're comforted, as we're warned, we look to Christ. And as we look to Christ, what we see is life. What we see is hope. What we see is forgiveness for sins. And so I want to pray, and I just want to ask that the Spirit would help us to see what we're meant to see today. Heavenly Father, oh God, I thank you that, that we come and we often feel like we're offering up our loaves and our fish like the little boy. See a multitude of people and we've got these, this tiny little lunch that we pack for ourselves. And we wonder how far will this go? And yet you take it and you multiply it and you feed and you nourish. And God, and I confess I feel like that today. In my preparation, even all week I struggled with this. And Lord, even now I look out at this room full of people and I have no idea what it is that you would say. And Lord, I feel very feeble. I'm just a man. And my emphases are often in the wrong place. And I put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. I do that all the time, Lord. I know that. But I trust and I believe that as the word of God goes out, it doesn't return void. And I'm praying, God, and we're praying right now that you would apply your truth into our hearts in exactly the place where we need to receive it. God, I pray against Levi's agenda. Lord, and I pray against the agenda of everyone sitting here. God, I pray that your agenda would be furthered, that your will would be done. God, that you would just take that verse, take the truth, take the implication, and press it deep into each of our hearts, God, that we would walk away from your word, not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word, as we call it doing James. God, that we would walk away changed. Lord, as you know, I've alluded to the fact that this is a month where we, as a culture, we, we celebrate things that your word condemns. But Lord, I pray that as we as a people go out into the world, in our workplaces, in our schools, I pray that we would shine light and love. God, I pray that we would go out as merciful ambassadors, Lord, proclaiming your truth, but proclaiming it, Lord, in love. God so loved the world that he sent his son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have life and life everlasting. The scandal of the gospel is that there is hope even for a Herod. There's hope even for a person like me or a person like those sitting in front of me. Lord, and we want to share that amazing, glorious, scandalous news with the world. So Lord, help us. Lord, break our hearts for the things that break yours. Lord, and open our mouths with confidence and faith to proclaim the truth. Lord, to all who would hear. So we pray this, God, believing that how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said it. Amen. Worship team, would you lead us?